This is Witness Radio with Ryan Muniak, where you learn biblical evangelism from real-life encounters. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Our feedback line is 513-900-8070, and the website is witnesstalkradio.org. Don't forget to subscribe to Witness Radio on your favorite podcast app. This episode of Witness Radio is brought to you by Audible. I know you like listening to stuff because you're listening to me right now. So go to witnesstalkradio.org slash audible and sign up for a free audiobook and 30-day trial today. Today I'm excited to share the airwaves with Bodie Hodge, a speaker, writer, and researcher at Answers in Genesis. He's recently co-authored A Flood of Evidence with Ken Ham to answer some of the top questions about Noah's Flood. Bodie has a master's degree in mechanical engineering, and he's been teaching apologetics to teens and adults for years. Bodie, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, it's great to be on the show. Bodie, tell us a little bit about you, and specifically, share with us how you were saved. Well, you know, my my story goes back a long time. You know, I'm getting old. Uh, you can see me here in the studio. I'm going bald. That's, uh, that gives you a lot of history there. But, uh, you know, when I was uh, nine years old, that's when I got saved. Uh, you know, I received uh, the Lord. I've been chatting with the pastor. Uh, you know, I grew up in a moderately Christian home. And, uh, you know, I, I really started to understand, you know, what the gospel meant and uh, received Christ as Lord and Savior. And, you know, I, uh, I, I grew a little bit. But then I, I would suggest that I was actually quite stagnant in my faith for quite some time. I really just didn't grow like I should have. And it wasn't until my college years that I really started to have, you know, some of those crises of faith. Uh, you know, where you step back and you say, you know, is the Bible really true? Is it not? You know, what's going on here? And you start to look at some of those questions in a lot deeper uh, fashion. Now, I know some people hit those phases a lot earlier than I did. But, uh, you know, I started to get in there and started to realize, hey, the Bible is true from beginning to end. And God's word can be trusted. And I'll tell you what, at that stage, my faith really started to explode. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of history in that. But uh, those are just some of the highlights that uh, my, my salvation testimony. Okay. So let me ask you this. What resource did you go to back then to firm up your faith? You know, today we've got Answers in Genesis, <laughs> ICR, Creation Today with Eric Hogan. We've got all, all different types of ministries focused on apologetics. What did you have back then? Well, when I first uh, started uh, asking questions and trying to seek some answers, I mean, that, that, that goes all the way back in the junior high and high school years. And really all I had was the Bible. And so I would look at the Bible and I'd read the Bible and I would search the Bible. And uh, when I was younger, you know, this is in the days before good solid search programs and stuff like that as well. Uh, I would I, I bought myself a little concordance and I could look up stuff, you know, that way. And so I did everything I could to get in the Word of God to try to figure some of these things out, but I still struggled. It wasn't until I had well, I had completed college and I was teaching at the university, and I ran across this book, The Great Dinosaur Mystery Solved, that had just come out from Ken Ham. That was my first introduction to Answers in Genesis. And I got a copy of that book, and unlike the other books that I just picked up on dinosaurs, uh, that one actually said, hey, let's go back to the Bible. Let's see what the Bible says. Let's use that as our basis, as our framework to look at dinosaurs. And that thrilled me because I'm like, now that's the right way to do it. you got to go back to the Bible. Let the Bible be the authority. Uh, some of the other books that I'd bought at the time, you know, they just took the evolution, the millions of years types of concepts that the world has been teaching, and they tried to mix it with their Christianity. And so I realized, hey, there's a big problem there. So I was really thrilled when I got that book, The Great Dinosaur Mystery Solved. Now, I'll tell you, I, I was pretty excited about that book. And 
At that same stage, I moved and I took a job at Caterpillar in Peoria, Illinois. And I was working as a test engineer up there. And I got up there and I, I went to a local Christian bookstore and I'm like, boy, I need to get some more of this stuff, right? And so, uh, you know, I, I had him pull up this, this chart that had all these uh, uh, book titles and things like that. And I'm like, hey, look up Ken Ham. I, I want to get something else from Ken Ham. And of course, there's a, a big listing of different books and resources that he had. And I was looking looking at the list and all it is is the name. I mean, that, that's all that was on this uh, computer listing. And I was like, well, you know, he did really good at dinosaurs. And they're like, well, there's the great dinosaur mystery solved. And I said, well, I've got that one. And uh, they said, well, uh, there's another one here. It's, it's D is for dinosaur. And I'm like, ooh, that sounds really good. Let's get that one. So I ordered that book <laughs> and it came in the mail. And come to find out it was like a, a book for kindergarten, first first graders, you know, to teach them the alphabet and, and, and things like that. And I'm like, really? And I'm like, okay, I got to search out this kid ham. And, uh, you know, the website was uh, becoming fairly popular around that time. And uh, I hopped on the internet and I was able to kind of connect with the ministry at that stage. Okay. And that website was AnswersInGenesis.org, which it still is today, right? Yep. AnswersInGenesis.org. From there, you know, I branched out. You know, I've uh, utilized things from the Institute for Creation Research. I've got some good friends there uh, and other creation ministries as well. And you mentioned uh, Creation Today with Eric Hoven. I've been on that show as well. Uh, good friends with Eric. And, you know, there's, there's a number of, number that are out there that are excellent. I'm actually a member of the Creation Research Society. Okay. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, these guys have done a lot of work uh, going back to the 60s. But, you know, back in my earlier years, I just uh, wasn't familiar with some of these guys yet. Yeah. It, it's wonderful to see what the Lord is doing now with all of the different apologetic ministries out there. I know Eric is spearheading a program for the Creation Network where it's putting together this whole big search engine and website of networking all the different ministries together, which I think will be great in helping to equip the saints. Yeah, in fact, uh, one, one of the fascinating aspects that there's a lot of local creation ministries all over the country, in, in fact, all over the world. And a lot of these guys, they don't have connection with each other. And that's what Eric's trying to do. He's trying to bring them together. Um, you know, here at the Ministry of Answers in Genesis, we're, we're the largest uh, Christian apologetics ministry that's out there. And so we have a big reach, but we can't do everything. We don't have local branches all over the place. So we want to encourage these guys to do it. In fact, in our past, one of the things we've done is run creation colleges where, you know, a lot of different people, people who are interested in becoming creation speakers will come and we'll help them hone their skills and, and uh, help equip them with different resources so they can really step up uh, their local creation ministry. So we do encourage that. Wonderful. So let me take a step back real quick. You actually got your start in mechanical engineering, not in biblical apologetics. What made you go from engineering to apologetics. You know, I got the degree. I got a bachelor's and master's of science degree in mechanical engineering, and I ended up teaching at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale. I used to teach engineering, and I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I loved teaching the kids, uh, although at the time I was about the same age as the kids. You know, it kind of confused kids when I go in the classroom. I, right, everybody take your seats. And they're like, really? <laughs> Some of these guys were older <laughs> than I was. But, uh, you know, I enjoyed teaching. I liked doing that. Um, and from there, I, like I said, I took a job at Caterpillar and I started working as a test engineer. So I got a chance to go out in industry and do some of that. And I enjoyed that as well. I mean, being a test engineer for a, a place like Caterpillar is an incredible job. You get to go out and take large pieces of construction equipment and break it. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a great job. But, you know, of course, you have to write up reports and take data and things like that and analyze all that. 
But uh, during that time, I'd actually been working with the youth. Uh, when I was uh, at Carbondale and teaching at the university, I showed up at the church I'd been going to uh, one evening. You know, they have their uh, uh, kids' Bible studies. They have Sunday schools and different things like that, you know. And so I would get involved and I would help out from time to time. One day I, I showed up and they said, hey, uh, junior high kids do not have a teacher. Can you run in there? So uh, I ran in there and we made it through a lesson, you know, uh, just, mm-hmm. just trying to fill in. Well, I walked out and they said, you're the permanent teacher now. And I was like, oh, I, and now I figure out how these people get these jobs. Uh, <laughs> so I've, I've become their teacher. Well, I, I took that great dinosaur mystery solved that I first had and I went back and I actually bought copies for each of the kids in the class and we went through it. And uh, the reason for that is I just asked the kids, I said, hey, what do you want to learn? Do you guys want to go through a book of the Bible? Do you guys have questions? Boom, all the hands went up. Yeah, we got questions. I'm like, well, what are your questions? What about the Big Bang? What about evolution? What about dinosaurs? What about millions of years? How do we know the Bible's true? Those are the types of questions these junior high kids were asking. And I'm like, you know what? Those are great questions. And, and at that stage, I had been struggling with some of those questions. Hmm. So uh, one, of the, one of them that I had an answer to at that stage was the, the dinosaurs. You know, I'd recently gotten that book. And so that's the reason I took them through that. They really enjoyed that. In fact, I've had conversation uh, at least with a couple of those kids uh, e- even in recent times, you know, because they've stayed connected in uh, Christianity and they even stayed connected with this ministry uh, one way or another. But I, I, I really uh, enjoyed teaching those kids. Well, then I moved up to Caterpillar. And I started getting involved in a church there and I got got involved with the youth and started running my own website there locally. I'd have kids come in and ask me the toughest questions. If I didn't know, I was going to go find the answer. I'd read it on Answers in Genesis website or ICR and I'd take some of these technical articles and I'd bring it down to one or two paragraphs to put it on the website. And uh, the kids uh, started kind of distributing that website. One day I hopped on the Answers in Genesis website and there was a, a little link that said Jobs. I'm like, huh, what kind of jobs do they have here? So I clicked on it and uh, one of the jobs was to answer questions, email, snail mail, phone calls from a theological and scientific perspective. They wanted somebody with a science degree. I'm like, wow, I'm doing this stuff for fun. (laughs) So uh, I applied and uh, they put me through a pretty rigorous uh, interview process. But uh, um, then they hired me. So uh, I've been here ever since. You mentioned a couple of times Ken Ham's book about dinosaurs. You obviously have this appreciation for Ken Ham and his ministry. But what I want to know is what is it like being related to him? Well, you know, when I first got that book, I had no idea that one day I would ask to marry his daughter. <laughs> I met his daughter when I moved out here to the ministry and uh, we got to know each other. And, uh, you know, we started dating and now we've gotten married and we've got four wonderful kids. But, uh, you know, working with Ken is uh, actually a joy. Uh, it's great, uh, you know, just to garner from his wisdom. I mean, he's got 30 years plus of ministry. And, uh, you know, that's that's really helpful for someone like me, you know, who, yeah, I've been involved in ministry now for about 15 years. If you go back to some of the early stuff I'd been involved in. So, you know, just garnering from that wisdom and his experience going all over the world and doing uh, creation teaching and apologetics ministry, I'll tell you what, that has been uh, invaluable for me. But uh, he's been a good uh, – in fact, he's been a great father-in-law. Okay. No sense in rambling. He's a he's a great guy. Okay. So there's no like secret guy behind the face <laughs> of AIG that we don't want 
anyone to know about. No. He, he, he is as we see him. Yep, yep. He's right out there, you know. Um, one thing people may not realize is Ken can sometimes be kind of a quiet guy. You know, for a guy who gets up and speaks all the time, people are used to seeing him speak and, and, and uh, all that. But, uh, you know, sometimes he just likes to sit around, do some reading and, uh, you know, things like that. So he's a, he, he's a pretty humble guy. Okay. So you say that you've been in ministry for roughly 15 years now. Have you had any hardships or troubling times in ministry? What, what were those like? Oh, there's always issues that pop up in ministry. <laughs> uh, you know, we've seen that over the years. And it just, you know, as, as an example, here at the Ministry of Answers in Genesis, when we opened the Creation Museum, boy, we got all sorts of attacks and things from atheists, from Christians alike. Uh, when we opened the Ark, you know, same sort of thing. I mean, we see these types of pieces of strife. Uh, with a ministry this big, yes, you're going to – there's always going to be in-house debates. There's going to be issues. Uh, you know, uh, one, one of the best things about ministry is the people. One of the worst things about ministry is the people. <laughs> we like to put it that way uh, because, you know, people, uh, uh, they don't always agree with each other and that leads to strife. Uh, one of the great things about working in Christian ministry, though, is uh, just as a general trend, even when we do have that type of strife, usually, you know, we, we still recognize, hey, we're Christian brothers and sisters, and, and we can th work through that thing, where I could see those same type of issues out in the world would cause some pretty big problems. What would you say is one of the most memorable moments in ministry that you've had? Well, I don't know if I could pinpoint one. I mean, uh, just, just consider, let, let me just throw out a couple of things just to make you think. Uh, when I came into ministry, uh, I've since been sent to Machu Picchu and Sacsayhuaman down in Peru. I got to speak down there. I've been to the Great Barrier Reef. I've been down the Grand Canyon. <laughs> you know, so when I start thinking of those things, it's like, well, what, you know, what, what's uh, really the best? I, I don't know if I could actually pinpoint a single one. The ones that uh, seem to pop up are the things that you don't expect. Uh, let, let me give you a, just just a fun example of this. I went to a church. I showed up there in the middle of winter, and I mean it was bone cold. And I get to this church, and apparently the night before the furnace had broken at the church. Mm. So we get in there, and I mean I, I am not kidding. It was it was below freezing in there, <laughs> and it was so cold. But there's all these people that showed up, and they wanted to have a seminar. I was so cold I couldn't even run the computer because my fingers were so cold, you know, and I have a presentation. But uh, they uh, people just r rushed, you know, people who live nearby brought a whole bunch of blankets and they passed out blankets and everyone's cuddled up under these blankets. All you could see was their face. And I'm up there and I mean, I'm cuddled up like you wouldn't believe and I'm trying to run my presentation and we get through it. Um, but that turned out to be some incredible ministry. Uh, we had a great time there. Even though it was freezing, it was cold. We were not expecting those conditions, but the people really enjoyed it. Those are things that I really think, hey, you know what? I look at the Apostle Paul and Peter and, and some of the things they had to endure back in the first century. You know what? We can deal with those sort of things as well. And uh, the gospel, no matter what, still goes through front and center. So, Amen. Man, I I don't know that I could deal with that. Heat, no problem. Cold, I, I don't like the cold. <laughs> yeah, it was an experience. I'll say that. <laughs> All right. Well, we will be right back with more from Bodie Hodge after the break. You're listening to Witness Radio. All right. So I've got a copy of Bodie Hodge's newest book written by him and Ken Ham called A Flood of Evidence. And they both signed this book and they want to give this signed copy away to one lucky person just for listening to Witness Radio. Go to witnesstalkradio.org 
by March 31st, 2017 to sign up for the giveaway, you could win a free book, A Flood of Evidence, signed by the authors Bodie Hodge and Ken Ham. Do you enjoy listening to Witness Radio? Would you like to help us continue making great content for you? Then please visit witnesstalkradio.org slash audible and sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible. You'll get a free audiobook of your choice and you'll be supporting this show. Need a suggestion? How about Raising Godly Children in an Ungodly World by Ken Ham and Steve Ham? It doesn't cost you a dime, but it's a huge help to us and you get a free audiobook out of the deal. So go to witnesstalkradio.org slash audible and start your free trial today. Imagine Jesus walking onto your local college campus. What would he say? Would he be like Matthew chapter 9, seeing the people harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd? And say, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. At Christian Collegiate Network, we are sending workers into the harvest. We are training students how to proclaim the glorious gospel. If you want to support our ministry at Christian Collegiate Network by becoming a campus leader or financially, go to changeyourcampus.com. You're listening to Witness Radio. Welcome back to Witness Radio. Remember, witnesstalkradio.org is where you go for more episodes. We are talking with Bodie Hodge, the author of A Flood of Evidence, a new book based around Noah and the Ark. Bodie, let's dig into this new book that you wrote with your father-in-law, Ken Ham. Who's the book for starting out and what's it about? Well, the book, we wanted to have a, a layman's book, a book just for the general person in the pew, but also for Christian leaders, for elders, for Sunday school teachers, where people ask all sorts of questions about the ark. They ask them about the flood, and we just wanted to give them a standard answer without them getting lost in technical detail. But then we didn't want it so shallow. It's like a kid's book. We wanted something that had some meat in it. So what we did is we put together these uh, top questions that we get, and we wrote them out, and we wanted to have it. Nice and easy for people to understand. So that was our goal with this book. And I think we've kind of hit that mark pretty well uh, just from the testimonies we've been receiving from people who've been reading the book. There's been really a big fascination lately surrounding Noah and the Flood. I mean, we've had films produced. We've got other books that are coming out about Noah and the Flood. Why did you think, you know, we should throw another book out there (laughs) all about Noah and the Flood? Yeah, you know, I mean, there are a lot of books out there. There's a lot of resources on Noah's Ark and the Flood. Uh, you know, I like to read a lot of the more technical stuff, um, although I do like some of the fun books, you know, some of the, the – the, like the kids' books. Maybe not for the little kids, you know, but, uh, you know, I do like a, a lot of these resources. But we notice that we're just missing that one that's right in the middle, the average book that the average person can read. And that's one of the reasons we said, hey, we got to get this book out there because it really does fill a niche that we don't have. But, uh, you know, it's interesting you brought up, uh, you know, some films. Um, you know, there was a Hollywood one that was a nightmare here recently. Yeah, uh, I, I believe the director said it was the least biblical, biblical film ever. Yes, and that's the Noah movie that starred Russell Crowe, yeah, Dar- Darren Aronofsky. And uh, I, I tell you what, if they would have removed the name Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Nobody would have had any clue this had anything to do with the flood of uh, uh, described in the Bible. That's how inaccurate it really was. So. Wow. Since we're talking about the flood and Noah and the ark, would you be able to give us like a brief synopsis of the biblical timeline surrounding it? Yeah, let's give you just a, an overall big picture. Uh, the flood itself 
uh, occurred over the course of about a year. Um, about five months of the water, uh, you know, you get the initial rain, you know, 40 days and nights rain. The rain doesn't actually officially end until the 150th day. That's when the rain was restrained. Uh, you have about five months of the water going down and then about two months of drying time. So it's a it's a pretty long, long flood when you think about it. I mean, just consider for a second being cooped up on this this huge arc uh, for about the, the course of a year with just your family. Mm. <laughs> Would you be ready to get off that arc and have a break? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure a lot of people were, but uh, right. But then we also have the countdown to the flood as well. You know, sometimes uh, uh, people look. What were the events leading up to the flood? The, the springs of the Great Deep bursting forth there. Some people thought, well, there's 120 years for Noah to build the ark. Actually, it wasn't 120 years for Noah to build the ark. That was the countdown to the flood. God said, "Hey, man, it's mortal." Uh, he's indeed flesh. Uh, you know, he gave him 120 years. That's the countdown to the flood. But Noah wasn't told to build the ark at that time. Instead, uh, when Noah was told to build the ark, the Lord said, hey, I want you to build an ark for you, for your sons and for your son's wives, also for Noah's wife uh, in there as well. So that means Noah had to have his children. They had to be old enough to have wives. So we usually put a range in there about 55 to 75 years uh, maximum for him to build the ark. It, it may well have been a lot less than that. And then, of course, the final loading phase was seven days before the flood. Hmm. So that's the biblical timeline regarding the events of the flood. But there's been flood legends passed down from varying cultures throughout the centuries. So with all of those different legends, and many of them are conflicting one another, why should we trust the Bible account of the flood? Well, the biggest difference is when it comes to the Bible, the the, the Bible comes from God. Uh, the Bible is true by virtue of it coming from the God who is the truth. And uh, when we see these different other flood legends, we actually expect to see those. I, th I see those as an excellent confirmation of the Bible's truthfulness. Uh, think of it this way. As people go to different parts of the world after the events that occurred at the Tower of Babel, they take their history with them. Uh, cultures all over the world have a creation legend, a creator legend. They have flood legends. They have Tower of Babel legends. We expect that because they took their history with them. But we also expect that they're not going to retain that information perfectly. Uh, they're going to deviate. Sometimes they're going to embellish the count. Sometimes they're going to lose information. Sometimes they're going to put local things into it. Like instead of uh, the ark landing in the mountains of Ararat, they're going to pick a local mountain somewhere uh, that they're going to try to insert into that account. So we do see those type of things, and we expect to see those things, but it's the Bible that records the true account. Okay. And now looking through the book, I noticed that much of it talks about the age of the earth, millions of years. I thought this was a book about the flood. I mean, why Why do you guys spend so much time focused on millions of years in a book about a flood? Well, a lot of people don't realize that the age of the earth is actually tied to rock layers. Uh, in the secular world, back in the late 17, early 1800s, People started to say, hey, let's look at rock layers, but let's leave the Bible out of it. Now, as soon as you leave the Bible out of it, you're leaving God out of it. And so what they did is they started looking at rock layers saying, well, maybe these rock layers were laid down slowly and gradually over long periods of time, perhaps millions and billions of years. So what they said was – no major catastrophes in the past. So in other words, they threw the, they, they threw the Bible out, thus they threw the flood out, and they replaced the evidence of the flood with the idea of millions of years. So that's how it's tied in. We're all looking at the same rock layers. The question is, is that evidence of a flood of Noah's day, or is that evidence of slow, gradual accumulations over millions of years? And so that's how that relates to the age of the earth. 
just just to put this into practical terminology, if you go out there to uh, uh, a, a college that's promoting atheism and millions of years and and some of these long ages, and you say, "Hey, uh, there was a global flood that occurred a long time ago," they're going to say, "No, no, no, you can't have a global flood." Well, why not? Well, because then we can't have millions of years. You see, because it destroys all their evidence for millions of years. So. That's what it is. It's a battle over the same rock layers. It's just the question is the interpretation of those rock layers. Gotcha. One of the things that you guys do in this book is you answer a lot of the common questions that come up in discussions and debates. And one of those questions that I've heard before is where did all the water come from for the flood and where did it all go? Yeah, well, the Bible talks about the springs of the great deep bursting forth. And uh, the windows of heaven opening. So the springs of the great deep are, are the primary source of these waters. Uh, so it's probably subterranean waters. And it, it probably feeds the windows of heaven uh, that are then coming down all over the place. Windows of heaven, we see that throughout the Bible. Uh, many times that's used in a metaphorical fashion, you know, like it's raining cats and dogs or, you know, the blessing comes from the windows of heaven. You know, it's kind of a, a term like that. But uh, the majority of the waters probably were subterranean that came out. And where they're at, they're still in the oceans today. That's where they've drained off to. Uh, the Bible talks about the mountains rising, the valleys sinking down to the place which God established for them. That's in Psalm 104. And so, you know, when you have the, the mountains rising, the valleys sinking down, naturally the uh, water is going to run off uh, to its lowest position, which is going to be in the oceans today. Another common objection, I guess, is – only eight people survived the flood. Why didn't God allow more people to be saved? Well, I think the main reason is because of sin. Uh, you know, uh, Noah was the only one seen as righteous. He was blameless compared to those of his generation. And uh, the other people, they, they had a chance to repent. The Lord gave him a 120-year countdown. He even sent Noah, a preacher of righteousness, to them. And yet uh, only only eight people survived. Uh, when uh, Noah was called onto the ark, he, he actually said, because you are righteous, uh, you're coming on. Uh, so that just goes to show that people love their sin uh, more than they love God before the flood. As I just asked about, you know, there only being eight people survived, that means a lot of people died during the flood and a lot of animals died. Do we see any dinosaur fossils mingled in or mixed in with human fossils? Well, you know, that's a great question. I've gotten that question uh, for years. In fact, I answered that question in a, in a book we have called The Answers Book, Volume 1. It's one of the, one of the first books I was involved in. But, uh, you know, we, we typically don't. And there's good reasons for that, I think. Uh, humans, uh, you know, by our body form, we tend to float, uh, you know, when, when things drown. Mammals tend to do that. You know, if you think of other mammals, uh, just the mammalian features, they tend to float. Where reptiles would tend to sink. Uh, you know, so just by the natural sorting power of water, they're going to be separated out into into two different layers. Uh, there's other factors involved as well. Uh, when you look at these uh, different rock layers, uh, a lot of them were laid down based on where everything was at. You know, in other words, the stuff at the bottom of the ocean, that's going to be the stuff laid down first. It's not going to flee to higher ground. Your shells aren't going to take off. So the stuff in that area is going to be buried first. Basically, where things are living is going to also uh, play a major role into where things are buried. So, uh, you know, like for today, let's say there was a global flood today. What are the odds you and a lion are going to get buried together? It's pretty rare. You know, most of the lions are living elsewhere and uh, there's not too many people that live right there where the lions are. So, you know, the odds of that are actually quite low. But here's another factor that I think a lot of people don't realize. How many people are actually living at the time of the flood? 
Um, you know, I've seen people throw out numbers of billions and billions of people, but I think those numbers are just grossly exaggerated. And the reason for it, there's only 10 generations from Adam to Noah. That's it, 10 generations. Uh, if you realize there's only 10 generations from Jacob's sons when they went down to Egypt to when Joshua leads them into the promised land. Joshua was in the 10th generation from there. And uh, the Bible gives us numbers for that. And yet keep in mind that the Lord gave the increase to the Israelites while they were uh, in Egypt. But uh, there was about 600,000 men of fighting age. And if you double that, you know, to account for women and then add a few more, that's still less than 1.5 million people. So it wouldn't surprise me if the population before the flood was quite small. Now, another uh, uh, thing that relates to that is the people before the flood, every thought of their mind was evil all the time. Now, God only gave a handful of commands there originally. One of those commands was to be fruitful and multiply. So people were defying God. If they're opposing God, they're not going to want to be fruitful and they're not going to want to multiply. They're going to want to defy God on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you know anything about an evil culture, the f- the first people who get attacked are usually the kids. Child sacrifice. I mean, we see that in our own culture today with uh, abortion, uh, which is just a form of child sacrifice. Right. You know, people are wanting to make a name for themselves, not for their children. So it wouldn't surprise me if the population was actually low and declining at the time as well. Hmm. That's a lot to digest right there. <laughs> right. No, that that's definitely a lot of interesting thoughts to to ponder upon. And I think we're going to let the audience take a moment to ponder on that as we go to a commercial break. This is Witness Radio. The children of Lima, Peru face many difficulties, hunger, neglect, abuse, and most importantly, a lack of the gospel. Heart of Christ Ministries seeks to bring the gospel and to fulfill the other needs of the children. Please consider partnering with us. You can sponsor a child for just $25 a month, and there are many other ways to help. Please visit hofcm.org. You know you should read your Bible every day, but things just seem to get in the way. How would you like it if someone else did the reading for you? Bible 365 is a new podcast that reads your daily dose of scripture for you. There's no annoying chapter breaks to distract you or personal commentary to confuse you. Just listen to God's Word on Bible 365 and you'll get through the whole Bible in one year. Go to muniacfamily.com slash Bible365 or find Bible365 on your favorite podcast app. You're listening to Women's Radio. Welcome back again. We are talking to Bodie Hodge, the co-author of A Flood of Evidence, 40 Reasons Noah and the Ark Still Matter. And now we're talking about the flood and the ark. And speaking of the ark, Answers in Genesis has recently created or recreated the Ark in the form of the Ark Encounter attraction. Why in the world did you guys decide to build a giant boat where there's no water? <laughs> oh, we got plenty of water out here. It just it, it rains and it just runs all over the planet. <laughs> yeah, we're in an area that gets uh, extensive amounts of rain up here. But uh, yeah, I know we we built a, a great big uh, Noah's Ark in the middle of a continent. <laughs> right. Who knows? Maybe Noah did that. <laughs> but uh, you know, the reason that it's centrally placed here is actually strategic. 
Uh, the Cincinnati area here, you know, a lot of people don't realize Cincinnati uh, kind of grows into northern Kentucky. It starts to grow over here into Indiana. It's where three states come together. But the reason that we've selected this area is we are within one day's drive of two-thirds of the U.S. population as well as most of Canada's population. So it's centrally placed for a good reason. Uh, people can get here fairly easily. So that was the number one reason for it. Now, yeah, I know it's uh, kind of winter time here when we're recording uh, this this uh, segment. And uh, the fact is, when I drove in today, uh, it was icing outside. And it's days like that that I'm like, why didn't we build this in the southern part of Florida? <laughs> you know, I, I think those types of things. But, uh, you know, it, it it is for location. We want to see as many people come to this as possible because we want them to understand that, that the account of the flood, the account of Noah's Ark is true. And, hey, because that account is true, the message of the gospel that's, that's founded in that same account, that, that biblical account, is also true. So uh, we do it for gospel reasons. Okay. And, and how do you guys – get the gospel into this whole message about Noah's flood, about the ark. Yeah, well, we uh, we we have actual displays in there. As you go through Noah's Ark, it's not just a an area that's going to smell like a bunch of pens and you see a bunch of animals sitting in it. Uh, you know, we have some world class exhibits in there. Uh, we have the gospel clearly outlined, and uh, we're we're even going to be showing some uh, a video that really outlines the gospel as well. So, uh, you know, we put it there. It's also in a lot of the resources that you would get a hold of. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways to do it, uh, to get the uh, gospel uh, in there to people. You know, the good news of Jesus Christ. See, we want we want people to know that. And so uh, we're, we're going to try to hit it from a number of different avenues. But uh, I'll tell you what, the exhibits uh, really clearly outline this. It's pretty powerful. Bodie, did you have any part in the creation of that attraction? Uh, a little bit, but uh, more minimal. You know, we had plenty of other researchers that were heavily involved in it, and we'd, we'd look over some of the research and things like that. But, uh, you know, we, we've been working with people for many years on that. Uh, you know, the design of the, the Noah's Ark uh, that's utilized at the Ark Encounter actually goes back to an engineer named Tim Lovett. Uh, he's an engineer from Australia. And, uh, you know, he's uh, been involved in looking at the structure and the shape of Noah's Ark for a, a decade. And, uh, you know, then we also had some other uh, uh, people looking at the content inside the Ark. Uh, Tim Chafee, uh, you know, has done an, an incredible job, you know, putting together a lot of the signage and a, a lot of the things that are involved over there. And, you know, we, we worked with, a, you know, the, the grounds guy over there has done some incredible work outside of it. His name's Tim Schmidt. Uh, so if your name's Tim, you're probably uh, going to be heavily involved at the Ark Encounter, right? <laughs> uh, actually, we've had a lot of wonderful people. Patrick uh, Marsh is the exhibit designer. We've had a lot of wonderful people uh, to to take up that banner and run with it. So my involvement has been minimal, but uh, still uh, uh, somewhat involved uh, uh, behind the scenes. Okay. So you brought up the shape of the Ark, and that's been a little area of contention that I've seen over the past few years is some people are upset uh, with answers in Genesis because they made the ark look like a boat instead of a box. Why did answers in Genesis decide to design their ark the way that it looks? Well, believe it or not, uh, a lot of that goes down to the structure of Noah's ark. But uh, you almost need to understand a little bit of history before we get to that stage. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's another question that, that pops up that's related to this that actually ties into the box shape versus the, the structural uh, shape of Noah's Ark. And that's the question of how the animals fit on the Ark. Uh, for the longest time, creationists 
uh, we're trying to answer that famous question from the skeptics, how'd you fit all those animals on the ark? And so what we did is we just took the dimensions in the Bible, 300 by 50 by 30 cubits, made it into a box shape, and okay, that's our volume. Let's try to fit the animals on there. And so for a long time, we were trying to answer that question. Well, once we answered that question, well, then all of a sudden, all the skeptics seemed to shift. They started to say, okay, fine, you could fit all the animals on the ark, but there's no way that box-shaped ark could possibly survive a global flood. Well, those corners come together, it's sharp. Nobody would do that uh, in the water because as soon as the, the wind and the waves start hitting that sort of thing, it's going to just tear those corners right apart and it's going to start leaking, you're going to sink, there goes the ark. And so it was at that stage that people like Tim Levitt said, okay, let's start looking at the structure a little bit more. Uh, you know, there was a bunch of Korean engineers – uh, there was a mixture of Christian and non-Christian said, hey, let's look at the ratio of the dimension. So they were the first ones to really start diving into the structure uh, in a lot more detail. And uh, they did structural studies. Noah's Ark actually fit beautifully between strength, comfort, and stability. I mean, it is uh, – th that ratio of dimensions is incredible. Uh, the Navy, a lot of cargo ships actually mimic that ratio, uh, which is fascinating. But uh, Tim Levitt said, well, let's go one step further. You know, a lot of ancient ships of antiquity, stuff we pulled out of the Mediterranean, ancient Chinese ships, stuff we've seen from Scandinavia, all over the world, would have certain features on these ships that they had. And uh, sometimes they would have a keel at the bottom. They'd have a, a bow fin, just different things that would actually grab the wind and the waves to, to make their ship more stable, particularly in rough waters. And so what Tim postulated was he's like, okay, Noah lived 350 years after the flood. Shem lived 500 years after the flood, and they were master shipbuilders. Where did these people get all this incredible technology uh, all over the world? And yet we lost most of that uh, technology by the age of exploration. He said maybe Noah and Shem and some of these other, you know, like Japheth or, or Ham, we don't know exactly how long they lived. Maybe they passed some of that technology on. Hmm. And so he started saying, hey, maybe Noah's Ark utilized some of these features. So one of the things he did is he started doing some experimentation on a box-shaped ark because you want the box-shaped ark to ride into the wind and the waves. When the wind and the waves are coming in a direction, you want the, the, the ark to ride into it. Uh, what happened was they put the box-shaped ark out there and it would start to turn perpendicular and start to wobble, wobble, and sometimes flip over. Well, you don't want to know his arc that's going to be flipping over. Right. So even though those dimensions are incredible, you still need to be able to deal with the wind and the waves. And so he started saying, well, let's take some of these ancient features. Let's put them on the ark. And so he uh, designed what we call the Lovett design uh, for uh, Noah's Ark. That's what the Ark Encounter is actually based on. Uh, you know, a lot of times you see that bow fin up there and people are like, oh, I see it. What those are, are utilized to do is to naturally grab the wind and the waves. So you have to keep in mind Noah's Ark's a floater. It doesn't have a have a motor or an engine, you know, to to run it. It doesn't mm -hmm. have a propeller. It doesn't have sails. It needs something natural to be able to grab the wind and the waves. So when he started doing the experiments with, uh, uh, you know, a, a keel and bow fins and all these different features, it would actually correct itself in the wind and the waves as as it's getting pushed along, hmm. which is some incredible research. So uh, does no is that you know is the, is the love it design the absolute shape of Noah's Ark? We don't know. Um, but uh, we know that, uh, you know, the Lord was involved in the design, so it wouldn't surprise us uh, if there really were some some pretty incredible things that even we haven't thought about that were involved in Noah's Ark. So we're still tentative with the shape of that, but it does let us know that, hey, structurally, there are some pretty fascinating features that were probably involved. That is really neat. So speaking of not knowing exactly what 
the Ark looks like. Has the original Ark ever been found or at least pieces of it, parts of it? <laughs> Most people probably wouldn't ask that question if Noah's Ark's actually been found. Um, you know, that would be the find of the millennium. I mean, that would be a huge find. Um, believe it or not, researchers actually debate over where Noah's Ark landed. Uh, one of the most popular places is Mount Ararat. It's the biggest mountain over there in the, that, that whole region. You know, it's a huge volcano. There's also a smaller volcano, which is also huge yet, uh, called Lesser Ararat. And uh, Mount Ararat stands more than 17,000 feet high. That's, that's taller than any mountain over here in North America, just to give you an idea. So uh, it's got a record of eruptions. I think they, they know about five or six eruptions uh, from Mount Ararat going back for the past 2,000 years. Its last eruption was in the 1840s. So mm-hmm. consider, you know, had, had Noah's Ark actually landed somewhere in that area, uh, most likely it's been buried by mm-hmm. a volcanic debris. Now, a lot of ancient literature actually points to a different mountain. Uh, Christians, Jews, Muslims, and a lot of their ancient literature would point to a mountain called Mount uh, Judy. It looks like Mount Cudi, but it's pronounced Mount Judy. J-U-D-I is the way it kind of looks if we were to pronounce it that way, but it's C-U-D-I. And uh, what it is is a lot of ancient literature says that was actually the old Mount Ararat. That's where the Ark landed. It's about 6,000 feet high. Uh, Just to give the listeners an idea, think the Appalachian Mountains, about the height of some some of those peaks. And... uh, you know, that'd be a lot easier for animals to disembark, to go to different parts of the world. They're both in the same general region from each other. Uh, Mount Cootie's essentially across a big ravine area uh, from where what, what we call Mount uh, modern-day Mount Ararat. And, uh, you know, the Muslims claim they took the last of the big beams from there about a 1,000 years ago and u- utilized them in a, in a mosque. So is that the absolute site? Still not sure. Um, you know, we published on that and – and what I'd like to do is refer people to, people to a ministry uh, that actually deals with that in a lot more detail. That's the Associates for Biblical Research. Uh, they're an archaeology group. Uh, some wonderful guys over there have been uh, good friends with Answers in Genesis for a lot of years. But they have some people on the Mount Ararat side as well as the Mount Judy side uh, that kind of debate back and forth. So they're kind of the experts on some of this. So uh, I'd refer, refer people there if they want to find out some more about that debate. Okay. And what's the website for those? Uh, you know, off the top of my head, I'm not sure. But uh, if you just type in Associates for Biblical Research in a search engine, it should be the first thing that pops up. Okay. Going back to the actual attraction of the Ark Encounter, there's been a lot of conflicting reports regarding the attendance numbers there. What's it really like? <laughs> what Do we have people going to the Ark Oh, we've got uh, – the, the numbers are actually a little higher than what we've been anticipating. See, it's uh, – you know, a lot of people don't don't understand how it works in a lot of the tourist business. Uh, most of your visitors actually come in the summer times and most people come on Saturdays. But, uh, you know, when you go throughout the winter months, uh, just like what we see here at the Creation Museum, certain numbers dwindle and, and we expect that. Uh, the, the worst months in the northern Kentucky, uh, Cincinnati area – uh, for just about any place up here uh, that's involved in tourism are going to be November uh, through February. Mm-hmm. Naturally, nobody wants to go on vacation to the Cincinnati area when it's two degrees out. <laughs> right. You know, um, and, and those those are actually uh, factored in when we look at population estimates, what we're expecting. But uh, we've had more than 400,000 people show up in just a matter of months. And uh, our numbers are actually higher than the projected days uh, that we're looking at. So I think our numbers are going to be uh, pretty close to spot on for what we're looking for for first-year attendance uh, by the time we uh, finish a full year. So you think that the ARC encounter is 
going to hit the 1.2 million that was projected? Yeah, remember, that's a minimum number, 1.2 to 1.4 million. Um, I think it's going to hit that uh, at this stage. So, I mean, that's just according to the numbers. Uh, we're actually probably a little higher than uh, than what we're, you know, ba- based on that projection, you know, with the mm-hmm. numbers going, we're actually a little higher per day. So it's, I, I think we can hit those numbers easily. Is there any reason for people who have already visited the Ark Encounter, is there a reason for them to come back? Well, <laughs> are, are, do you have... There's a lot actually in place. When we first designed the park, there, it's not just supposed to be a Noah's Ark. Yeah, I mean, we, we see certain elements with it already. We got the zoo back behind, which is actually being expanded. We got Imzara's kitchen, but we also have a walled city that's going up. And uh, we're wanting to build a Tower of Babel, a first century village. There's a host of things that we want in there. But what you need to do is you need to be able to filter people out. Uh, the last thing we want to do is have people come to the ark and we want them to go through and understand, hey, the Bible's true and the gospel founded in that Bible is also true. And yet they're so crowded they don't get the message. So you need to be able to filter people out uh, throughout the park into different areas. And so we've got a number of things planned. I'm not, I'm just giving you a, 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 just a touch, a taste of some of the things that are going to be involved out there. But it really is the kind of place you want to come back to. And we've seen the same thing here at the Creation Museum. You know, we've had people who came the first year and now they come back and they're like, where'd all this stuff come from? Mm-hmm. You know, we're constantly mm-hmm. adding to it, uh, more exhibits, more things to, to explain. And, uh, you know, it, it's been a powerful, uh, uh, outreach here at the Creation Museum. And we expect the same thing at the Ark as we continue to expand. Okay. And one thing that I want to know personally, I've got four kids uh, just like you do. Mine are all very young. And one of the things that my wife and I noticed when we visited with our children is there, at least when we visited back towards the very opening, there wasn't really much for young children to do. Is there plans for like a playground or anything else to get the kids energy dispersed <laughs> <laughs> yeah actually uh, the, the, there's quite a few things at least in the works uh, we were going to have a whole little area there with the playground kind of centralized uh, because you know a lot of times kids you know it's like they're walking around they're seeing this and that sometimes they just need to well they just need to run around and have a, have a good time right uh, in a safe area where you can watch them and uh, you know parents like that too because, oh, okay we can sit down let the kids play for a little bit while we digest some of this so yeah we are doing some of that but we're also wanting to do certain kids things uh, throughout uh, the ark as well as uh, you know outside one of the things we added was the fossil find uh, that a lot of the kids like to do of course it's winter time and nobody wants to do that in the, in the middle of winter but that's kind of an outdoor activity so we are adding some of those different features we've done the same thing here at the creation museum different uh, aspects and elements for the kids as they go through the museum so uh, we do have uh, uh, things like that uh, in the works and some that's already started to come to fruition you came on today to tell us about your most recent book, A Flood of Evidence. But you actually have right here on the table in front of us, you have a ton of other books that you've written. Uh, some of my favorites, the World Religions and Cults trilogy, How Do We Know the Bible is True, Demolishing Supposed Bible Contradictions, Confounding the Critics. Uh, those are those are all my favorites because I'm very much into evangelism and apologetics. You've also written other stuff, a book focused on the Tower of Babel, something about the war on Christmas, which would have been good, you know, back when Christmas time was coming. It's past Christmas as this is airing, but something to remember for next Christmas. And 
a book that I haven't read yet, but I'm definitely intrigued by, is called The Fall of Satan. So very briefly, tell us a little bit about your other book selections. Oh, boy. I've been on a lot of books. Probably one of my more popular books has been The Tower of Babel. Did a book and a DVD on that, you know, where it talks about the different people groups and where they went to all around the world. But, uh, you know, I've been involved in uh, other books, uh, Flood Legends. I was involved in a book on that, Dragons, Legends and Lore, Dinosaurs. I've been on fold-out books. I've been in uh, kids' books, teen books. I've been involved in adult books. I've been involved in a lot. And, of course, we have more coming. We like to, uh, you know, hit all levels, hit all ages, and try to fill those niches that we just need a little bit more in. So uh, be praying for us as we put out more resources. And, uh, you know, pray the Lord receives the glory in all this as well. Bodhi, where can people go to get more information about you and if they need to, to contact you for speaking or questions? Yeah, I would hop on our website, answersingenesis.org. Again, that's answersingenesis.org. And, uh, you know, you can find these resources there. You can read uh, more about my bio, a little more extended uh, information there. You can get a hold of of uh, a lot of the DVDs that I've been involved as, with, with as well. And I know uh, here at the Ministry of Answers in Genesis, we have a number of speakers. You know, Ken Ham still goes out. Um, you know, we've got Brian Osborne, Terry Mortensen, Tommy Mitchell. Uh, we, we've got a, a whole lineup of different people. You know, I go out from time to time. But they can find all that on our website, answersingenesis.org. Okay, very cool. And if you want, audience, any of these resources that I've just listed that Bodie's written, go to witnesstalkradio.org slash AIG, and that will take you right to the bookstore. So again, Bodie, thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, it's great to be on the show, and God bless you, and keep up the great work. One quick thing that I want to talk about after the fact, because this interview was done a couple of months ago, is right now, as I record this, it's March 3rd. And Bodie Hodge has recently had some health issues. And I would just ask that you would pray for Bodie, that he would make a full and speedy recovery. Pray for his family, his wife, and his children. And pray that this would all be used to glorify God. You could win a free book, A Flood of Evidence, signed by the authors Bodie Hodge and Ken Ham. Go to witnesstalkradio.org by March 31st, 2017 to sign up for the giveaway. And thank you listeners for coming to another episode of Witness Radio. Visit witnesstalkradio.org to find the show notes and leave feedback. Don't forget to join us on social media and share this episode with your friends. Now that the show is over, it's time for you to go. That is, to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. May God bless you. This show has been a production of the Muniac family. Please pray for us as we continue to minister in the tri-state area and around the globe with Christ-centered programs.